I have um, a few scenes, a few few images burned into my brain. These are these are times in my life where, in a moment, I experienced something that that was so shocking to what I was seeing that that I can just remember every detail of that moment. Um, I, I can just, I could go and I could think of maybe t- these 10 times in my life this, is, this has happened, where it's just like, man, I can remember the scene so well. One of those happened in uh, March of 2020. Um, it was in Mumbai, India. And A.J. Olson and I were there on a mission trip, uh, uh, along with Austin McKnight. And we were, we were in Mumbai, and we were coming up this street and uh, it's somewhat like a cobblestone street, but a really bad street, like lots of holes and stuff in it. And on, on each side of the road, uh, there were these little shops. And on this side of the road, uh, it was more like storefronts. They were actually built buildings with brick and mortar and, and uh, some, somewhat of a store, storefront. They were a little nicer, uh, but definitely something that you would think, like when you would see something in a third world country, it belonged there. And on the right, right-hand side of the road, the, the, the little storefronts, they were just more like shacks. I mean, very crude in how they were made with tin roofs and tarps, and there were people selling their, their goods from that. And as, as you kind of look up the hill, on the left-hand side of the street, you could see these like massive gated communities with these like 30, 40-story uh, tall apartment complexes. They're really nice, and they're gated, and it's like you can't, you know, you can't get into them. Like, they're incredibly nice. They look very modern. And on the other side of the street, on this hillside, it just goes up as this massive slum. Uh, that's what they call them. That's their words. It's a, it's, a, it's a slum. And they're just stacked together, and it's just like a, a maze, a web of sl- slum. And it's tarps, it's tin, it's just trees, trees, sticks they've cut down and they've, they've put together, and it's incredibly poor. And, and right at the end of the shops, the, the set on the right-hand side of the road, there was this, this trash heap. And this trash heap had been burnt. Uh, that's, by the way, that's where, the way that most of the world deals with their trash. They burn their trash, right? And so... Uh, here you've got this, this kind of smoldering mound of trash, and there is a lady eating out of it. And, and she is there. I can, her, her face haunts me. I can see her face. She is thin as a rail. She, she, she looks like she is 20 pounds underweight. The clothes that she is wearing have... Uh, tons of holes in them. She is incredibly, you know, she's, she's dirty. And in her hand, she has a banana peel that she's about to eat. And when you look up the street, here came a lady, young, pretty, early 20s, driving a Mercedes G-Wagon. And the thing in that moment that just so shocked my system, shocked me, is, is the disparity. It's the shocking disparity in the moment between the poor and the rich. It, it, it was an, an incredible 
moment that is etched in my mind. And you have, to, you have to step back a second when you're in that and go, how can this be? How can we live in a world that allows and accommodates this kind of disparity? Sociologists have uh, called this the social stratification system. Uh, when they say that, it's referring to the way in which a so- society categorizes its people into the rankings of socioeconomic kind of status or tiers. And different things factor into it, right? So if you think, think about it, there's, there's wealth, there's income, there's race, education. Uh, in, in our world, you're hearing a lot about power dynamics and, and, and those kind of things. Power. And you have social stratification systems that are essentially either closed or open. In an open social stratification system, sociologists say that, it, that people can move. You can, you can be, be lower class. You can be poor and you can work your way. You can pull your way up and you can work your way up to being rich. But in a closed stratification system, uh, it's locked in. That's also, you've heard it be called a caste system. You are born into that caste. Now, I'm going to tell you, I don't think uh, America is either one of those. I, don't, I think sociologists get a little bit of that wrong. I think we definitely have a class system in America, uh, but there's also a caste system in America, and it would be, uh, no doubt, be a fun conversation. If you ever want to have it, I'd love to have it. I'd love to, to talk through that. I would love to, love to talk through the dynamics of the rich and the poor in America. But there, in India, what you have is the remnants of a caste system. Uh, they, they work, it's influenced by their Hindu faith. Uh, not, not obviously, not everybody there has a Hindu faith, but the Hindu faith and what they believe has shaped the culture in, that they live in. So the, the, the Hindu faith and the belief of karma, we, we misuse the idea of karma. Karma as, it, as it's thought up, we, we appropriate it, by the way. That's what we do. Um, karma in the Hindu belief system would basically say, like, you get what you deserve. And so they would look at those two, those two women, and they would go, in the past life, this one did something that landed her that was good, and that, therefore, after she died and came back to life, reincarnated into that caste system, she deserved it. This one must have done really good things because here she's born into this caste system. And so their, their belief about how you live your life in, in, in karma affects the way that they live out their faith. Here's the big truth that I want us to walk away with today. When we walk through this passage of Scripture in Luke chapter 16, this story that's been known as the rich man of Lazarus, and Lazarus, this is what I want you to know. Here's the big truth. What we believe about the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus shapes the way we live this life and the next. What we believe shapes how we behave. Our faith shapes our action. We see this clearly in Scripture. So we're going to start 
Luke chapter 16, verse 19, we're picking up. We have now um, been officially, this today marks one year in the book of Luke. And um, seven years to go. <laughs> I'm just kidding. Uh, ten months, nine months. Verse 1. There was a rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen and who feasted sumptuously every day. And at his gate was laid a poor man named Lazarus, covered with sores, who desired to be fed with what fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, even the dogs came and licked his sores. The poor man died and was carried by the angel to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried, and in Hades being in torment." He lifted up his eyes, and he saw Abraham far off, and Lazarus at his side. And he called out, Father, Abraham, have mercy on me, and send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water, and cool my tongue, for I am in anguish in this flame. But Abraham said, Child, remember that you, in your lifetime, received your good things, in Lazarus, in like manner, bad things, but now he is comforted here, and you are in anguish. And besides all this, between us and you, a great chasm has been fixed in order that those who would pass from here to you may not be able, and none may cross from there to us. And he said, Then I beg you, Father, to send him to my father's house, for I have five brothers so that he may warn them, lest they also come into the space of torment. But Abraham said, They have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. He said, No, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. He said to him, If they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. Now, as we begin to take apart, to look at, to exposit this passage of Scripture, uh, we have to know what we're reading. And we have been in the middle, uh, we have been in the middle of this section here where Jesus is speaking about the rich. He's talking to the Pharisees, he's been warning them about the rich. And we've also been in these parables. Now, we have to ask the question when we read this, is this a parable or is this a literal story? And, and, and how we answer that question really brings some things into interpretation that would matter. I believe, uh, the, the vast majority of scholars believe, that this is in fact a parable. Okay, so this, this is a parable. It is, remember, a parable is a colorful story that uses earthly images that we can see to help communicate heavenly meanings that we cannot see. So put simply, a parable is a short story that conveys a greater truth. And so this is a, this is a parable. We mess up when we read parables when we try to interpret too much out of them. We can, we can draw uh, meaning, we can set doctrine and theology out of a, a parable when that parable was only, typically when parables only have one main point. And so we can get in trouble here if we start to interpret 
things, especially, I think, in this parable about heaven and hell and uh, Abraham speaking to people in hell. Like, if we start thinking, we, we get our theology about heaven and hell from here, we can mess up. I think there are truths that we can learn uh, about heaven and hell from here, but we have to let it Scripture interpret Scripture. There are other places that we have to go and look and, and read to make sure uh, we're, we're getting the correct understanding. Now, Remember, when we think about context, so we've got our, our literary feature, this is a parable. When we think about context, we have to remember, as we're reading this, he's talking to the Pharisees, and the Pharisees loved what? Money, right? It just it says that the Pharisees were lovers of money. And last week, what happens when they heard him say these things, the lovers of money, they, they began uh, to ridicule him, right? They didn't handle rebuke. They, they were rebuked, and they turned, and they ridiculed him. So here Jesus is using a parable, another way uh, to get his point across to communicate this uh, truth to us. So let's begin in verse 19 to, to, to take this apart. We're going to go 19 to 21 here. Um, I want you to listen to the detail in this story. As Jesus is telling this, this parable... Uh, his economy of words is incredible. He puts so much into these little little verses. We could talk about, uh, for, for probably an hour, all the details of these, these few verses. There was a rich man who was clothed in purple uh, and fine linen and who feasted sumptuously every day. And at his gate was laid a poor man named Lazarus, covered with sores, who desired to be fed with what fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, even the dogs came and licked his source. Here's my first big idea. It's hard for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. That's scripture. That's the story of Jesus and the rich young ruler. Jesus and the rich young ruler, you have this young ruler who's very wealthy come to Jesus and say, uh, Jesus, how can, can, how can I be saved? How can I make it into the kingdom of God? And Jesus' response to him was actually kind of shocking. It was, go take everything you have and sell it to the poor. We don't see this anywhere else in Scripture. We don't see Jesus use this language. He's saying... Make Jesus Lord of your life. These are the things that are Lord of your life. Make them Lord. And, and the guy like considers his wealth and his possessions, and he's like, I can't walk away from this. And he clings to the thing of the world, and he walks away discouraged. And Jesus said, it is easier for a camel to fit through the eye of a needle than it is a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. And so there's something to learn here. Like when we're hearing this story about Lazarus, it's, it's that the rich man ha, has a hard time because he, he knows, he, he lives within this, his material wealth. He knows that he can provide for himself. He doesn't need God the provider, right? He thinks he can fix the problems himself. He's, he's independent. And so it's, it's, it's a roadblock. So I want you to hear this story. Now in this story, there are three men, right? You've got the poor man. Right? That's, that, that's very, like, we, we can hear the details of that poor man. We can envision in our head that poor man. We've got the rich man, but we also have Abraham. Now, we think about Abraham in, and the rich man. Which of those two men, as you heard that man described there, which, which of them had more wealth? Abraham or this rich man? 
I want to answer. Abraham. Abraham had it, didn't he? Like the dude had arrived. Like the Lord was good to him. Um, when we look at the patriarchs, when we read in the Old Testament, we read about Abraham, we see the Lord gives him incredible material blessing. He, he had it. And yet, what do we see of Abraham? He's in heaven. So when I say right here, it's hard for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God, it is not impossible for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. It's not impossible. We're going to see in Scripture, where, where Scripture talks a lot about the rich. It's not bad to be rich. It's bad to mismanage what God has given you. What we learned several weeks ago in uh, the parable of the dishonest manager. And so he's saying to the Pharisees, this is a, this is a warning to the rich. He's, he's telling a story, and here comes the application points. Let's, let's, let's look at the life of the rich man. Um, Let's, let's just, in, in your mind, begin to just build the disparity between the two of them. Um, one man was clothed in purple and fine linen. The other one was clothed in sores. One had his body clothed in the finest garments that money could buy. What we know from Scripture is that purple was a big deal. Purple was an expensive dye. That meant that um, you, you've got you've got money, you're, you've, you've got enough that you can buy these really nice clothes. And then you've got this other man clothed in sores that he literally has these open wounds on his body. You've got one man that eats sumptuously every day. And man, there's several clues in here. Sumptuously, uh, it, it means extremely costly, luxurious magnificent, right? There's like, he had these fine mills put before him every day. And, and by the way, we can re know from that that he probably wasn't like a great Jew. This, uh, scholars believe this was a Jewish man, and the fact that it says that he did it every day meant that he didn't observe the Sabbath the way that he should. This man would have had servants, and those servants would have, would have helped him. And, and so you have this other, other man who's clothed in sores, would eat the scraps off the floor, would love to eat the crumbs from the rich man's table, and the only thing he has serving him is when the dogs come and lick his wounds. So think about the disparity. In your head, think about like who is somebody who, who dresses uh, in the finest linens. Put that, put that in your head. What would, what would it mean for you if you like wore the nicest thing that your money could buy? What would it be? The dudes who in their head thought Lululemon, you're, you're weird. Um, what, if you could eat the nicest meals, what would you be eating? Caviar? Gross. Uh, I don't know, I've never had it. It's probably really good. Shouldn't hate. Um, Steak every day? I could do steak every day. I don't know. I don't, I don't know what you're thinking, what restaurant you're thinking about, but build that up in your head. Some of you are like, I go to the grocery store. Um, I shop at Whole Foods. I'm rich. Like, I, have you seen how much two bags of food cost? Like, I go to King Super. I walk out of there with two bags, and I'm like, can't, can't hide money. Uh, man, the inflation is incredible, right? Uh, college students are like, yeah, we eat ramen. You guys go to restaurants. We eat the dining hall, right? 
uh, y'all calm down. Those power dynamics and all that stuff. Y'all are going to tear down the rich. Y'all are like, get them all. Think about that. Build that person up in your head. Now think about, think about the poorest person you've ever seen. Think about the situation where you've seen a person and you've seen that person and in, in, in your head you're like, oh man, if I, could, if I could help them, I'd help them. They're pitiful. They, 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 they bring your heart to a place of despair. Now take that person and, and imagine them living side by side. This rich man walks by Lazarus every day. He's literally at his gate. When we think of beggar, we often think panhandler at the, at the intersection of college and horsetooth. We think about the guy standing out, outside, right, and flying his sign and, you know, I need money to get high. Whatever sign they have, sometimes they're real honest, sometimes they're not. Um, that's what we think. But if you've ever been in a, in a, in a in a truly poor country, and you see someone begging, often physically, they're they're deformed, they're hurt, their back has been hurt, they're they're hunched over, like they 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 literally cannot help themselves. They are they they can't. You know, the Bible says if a man doesn't work, a man doesn't eat. And these are people that the, the Bible makes room for that that says, oh, they can't work. They are totally dependent. And so here's this man with, with his source who would thank gladly and thank, be thankful to have the scraps off the table, would literally eat from the floor. Here, here you have this, this rich man who has his servants. They're taking care of him. He's flaunting as it. He walks by the gate and he ignores Lazarus. He obviously knows Lazarus. He's, he knows his name and he ignores him. He has people serve him, and yet the only service, uh, servants that Lazarus gets are the dogs that lick his wounds. Any, anybody ever have, had a dog lick a scab? Um, I, remember, I remember I had this dog named Max. Uh, Max loved blood, and any time as a kid, like if I like, had a scrape or something, Max would come up and lick my leg, and I saw the stuff that Max licked, and I thought that was incredibly gross. I'm like, stop it, Max. Um, Oh, man. The dog only had one eye. He was, anyway, he was a crazy dog. <laughs> believe it or not, in, ancient, in some ancient cultures, they believe that dogs uh, had, had an ability to heal when they lick. And there's probably some truth into it. If you think about it, a dog licks its wounds, and there's something going on in its mouth, and whatever. Like, I'm not suggesting you like, name your next dog Neosporin. Uh, it's not what I'm suggesting, but there's probably some truth to it. It happened. They actually had like, these hospitals in some cultures. They found like 1,500 dead dogs in, in one place, and that was like a hospital you could go in and get healing. But, but th that's what he had to soothe him, was yet a dog to lick his sores. And so I want you to feel the disparity that is there. Now, know this. The Bible speaks really clearly about the rich and the poor. We have a, a lot. This isn't the only story in Scripture. Matter of fact, Jesus' brother James speaks about both. James 1, 9 through 11. He says, Let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation 
and the rich in his humiliation. Because like a flower of the grass, he will pass away. For the sun rises with its scorching heat and withers the grass. Its flower fails and its beauty perishes. So also will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuits. And so... There's a, there's a warning, like these, the, the pursuits of the rich man, they're not eternal. They're not going to, to last. And yet, these are the things that the rich man's eyes are on. Matter of fact, Jesus, in the Sermon on, on the Mounts, he, you know, he, he says, Woe to the rich, and blessed are the poor. First, John, uh, John's speaking about the poor and how we should care for the poor. 1 John 3, 16 through 18. By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and truth. James says, you say you have faith, great. Faith without works is dead. If you say to someone who's, who's hungry and cold, go warm and be well fed and do nothing for them. Like that, that's dead faith. It's not real, real faith. It's, it's faith without action. This is what we know about the rich and the poor. We know that from, 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 from the Bible that... that, that being, being rich isn't necessarily just like, you've made it. You've arrived. This was the goal. This was the point. Having money, having wealth, it's what we ought to all work and obtain. But rather that it comes with um, great responsibility. It, it, it comes with the, the level to steward, a level to love and to take care of the poor. Here's what I want you to realize today. When I'm in, AJ and I are in, in India, we're there to preach the gospel. We're there to tell people about Jesus. The rich and the poor both have the same problem. It's a deficit of Jesus. It is a sin problem. It is a separation from God. That's, that's what it is. Our, the, the, the world's biggest problem isn't... isn't uh, any sort, it has nothing to do with economics. It has to do with lostness. It has to do with separation from God. The chasm between us and God. And when we're there in India, and we're there to proclaim the good news, how many rich people do you think invited us into their house? Somebody take a guess. Zero. How many poor people do you think invited us in their house? I don't, I don't know that number. I, I'm guessing it's between 30 and 40. Uh, just based off the amount of chai that I drink every time you went in a house, you had to drink chai. And um, I don't love chai. And it was also like pretty caffeinated uh, for, for several days, which was good because COVID was being birthed in that moment. Um, so anyway, the poor welcomed us in their home. The rich are like, what are you strange people doing here? Why is that? Because it is hard for the rich man who has all this material wealth 
physically to see that they are needy spiritually. There's, there's, there's such a stumbling block for those who have material wealth, who think that they can do it all, who think that they can uh, provide for, for themselves. It, it's, a, it's a mirage. It, it's, it's, a, it's a lie that we believe that we've got enough, that we've got purpose and, and, and we've got power, we've got these status and we don't, don't need more and we can do it ourselves. Like we can, in our, in our culture, in our pull us up by our bootstrap culture, like this is, this is a danger. The rich and the poor have the same problem. I also just want to just say for a second that the rich and poor are both made in the image of God. So often we look at the rich and poor and we don't see them mago day. Especially if you're in the, the middle class. Like as we think about our social structure, we look up at the elites and we, we, we're just gruntled towards the elites. And we look down to the poor and, and we think we're better than them. And so the danger might be that we look at both and don't see that they're made in the image of God. And they're, they're, they're full deserving of, of dignity and respect and love. Let's continue in the story. The poor man died and was carried away by the angels to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried. And in Hades, being in torment, he lifted up his eyes and he saw Abraham far off. And Lazarus at his side. Here's my next big idea. Everyone has a day appointed that he will die and face judgment. Now, I don't think we look at this, this parable and, and we see uh, necessarily that, that when you die, you're going to be by Abraham's side. Though I believe Abraham will be in heaven, obviously. That there's any sort of communication that you're able to look up from, from hell and to see who's there. I, I don't necessarily think we can draw that conclusion. That's the conclusion that should we, we should be drawing. But what we get from Scripture, what we see in the whole of Scripture, is that every day, everybody, lest you're alive at the return of Christ... Everybody has a day appointed in which they will die. There is a moment where you will take your last breath. And we, in large, don't get to choose when that moment is. And at death, I don't believe in soul sleep. I don't think Scripture teaches any sort of soul sleep that you're just, you're just asleep or that your soul vanishes, but rather that your soul, your inner being, exists eternally after death, that there is life after death, and there are two options to that life after death. It is heaven or it is hell, which he calls Hades here. It is heaven or it is hell. Everyone has a day in which they're appointed to die and face judgment. That day is coming. There will be a reckoning day. Here's the bad news. Is that when we go before that judgment. We will be guilty. The Bible is very clear. The wages of sin is death. None are righteous. Not even one. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. But the good news is that Jesus 
made a way for us through God sending His Son, sent His Son to die on the cross for our sins, that we can have a that we can have right standing. That at God's judgment, at our judgment day, those who have faith in Christ are pardoned for their sin. Meaning, God is looking on you and he's letting Jesus be the pardon for you. That Jesus' death on the, on the cross was our substitutionary atonement for our sin. Listen to what happens in the rich man's judgment day. And he called out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am in anguish in this flame. But Abraham said, Child, remember that you, in your lifetime, received your good things and Lazarus, in like manner, bad things. But now he is comforted here and you are in anguish And besides all this, between us and you, a great chasm has been fixed in order that those who would pass from here to you may not be able and none may cross from there to us. Now, we built up this disparity. You see this disparity between the rich man and Lazarus. You see the difference in how they have to live their lives. Here's my next big idea. Christians don't live for this life, they live for the next life. Christian, you're not just living for today, you're not just living for the wealth that you can build in this lifetime, you're not just, just, just living for wealth. You're not living for the things that you can accrue, the barns that you can build, the storehouses that you can build and store your grain in, that's the, that's the picture we see in the Old Testament. It's not just about this life. He says, child, remember that you in your lifetime received your good things. Your, your good, it, it was done for this life. Now, you may, you may like look at this story and go, okay, um, the rich man was selfish, blah, 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 blah. He lived for himself. The, the poor man, he didn't live for himself. Therefore, he gets to go to, to heaven and he, he goes to hell because he lived for himself. Well, well, we know from other places in Scripture that's not, not it. It's not works that's saved. But rather that we are a product. Our works are a product. Our, our works are evident by, by what we believe. What, what we believe works out. You've, you've heard me say what works in you works out. When you built up that that disparity and you thought of the rich man, did you think of yourself? Because here's the shocking reality. That in the point of this story, as Jesus is speaking to the Pharisees, the Pharisees are the rich man. The Pharisees are the ones who have this wealth and who are unwilling to help the poor. It's a hard concept for us to understand. That we are some of the people in this room are some of the richest people in the world. 
You know, I said in a sermon a few weeks ago, uh, I, I pulled out the research, but basically, the poorest person in this room, anybody want to claim that? College students are like, I'll claim it. You're a top four percenter. You're a top four percenter. The person in this room who has it the worst, you, are, you have more than 96% of the rest of the world. Remember, if you make $70,000 a year, I think it's $90,000 as a household, you are a top one percenter. In America, even our poor are rich. And so when we're in this moment, and I'm saying Christians don't live for this life, they live for the next. Every one of us in this room has, has this stumbling block in front of us that's this. Child, remember that in your lifetime, you received your good things. That, that we live in a world where it is easy for us to get caught up in our good things. In the, in the material possessions that we pursue, in the jobs that we pursue, in the social status that we pursue. I don't know what it is for you. And I would dare say that for everybody in the room, it's different. Generationally, it's going to be different. But the, the thing it is for you that you think, if I just had that, I'd be happy. If I just got to that status, I'd be happy. If I just made that amount of money, I'd be happy. Whatever that thought is for you, I want you to understand something. It's a lie. It's folly. When you get it, when you receive it, when you think, oh man, the world's going to be good if I get there, you're still going to not be satisfied. There's only one thing that will satisfy your soul, and it is not the world's earthly goods. But let's just pretend for one second that it could. That when it, whatever you build up in your head, you think, if I obtain that, if I work that, if I own that, if I was born into that family, if I had that opportunity, if I arose to that and I had that, and it fulfilled you. Listen to me. It only fulfilled you for a minute. Just a vapor. Because life is but a vapor. This life is a blip. It's a snap. It's the blink of an eye in the midst of eternity. And, and we're going to live this life. And we're going to pursue these good things. But you have to look. Look at Lazarus. Lazarus had the bad things for a moment. He suffered. He had the sores. He was at the lowly spot. He suffered. But because of it, what, would, the, the, what, just, what saves? Faith saves. So because of his faith, because of his relationship with Christ, he would be in heaven. Christians, don't live your life for, the, for this life. Live it for the next life. Here's the next big idea I want you to see from this same passage. He's crying out for mercy. Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue. I'm in such anguish, such torment. I don't think we can know a ton about hell from this passage. But I think we can know that it will be anguish. 
We know that, that hell is going to be hot. It's going to be as if a fire. I've been burnt. Have you been burnt? I used to be, a, I used to be a, a teenage boy, and teenage boys love fire, right? And I used to play with fire. And what happens if you play with fire? You get burnt. Getting burned doesn't feel good. I can't imagine what it would feel like over my whole body. But that's what hell will be like, that, that, that level of anguish. We know that it's dark. Some of you are like, I like darkness. Oh, you don't like darkness for eternity. With the time change, multiple times, Jennifer and I have looked at each other. and went, Is it time to go to bed yet? It's 5.30. 5.30 p.m. We still have hours. Like, I can't imagine like hell would be perpetual daylight savings time or whatever we're in. Like, that would be hell. I, I can't imagine. I just know it would be bad. Like, the darkness, right? And it's, it's wild for us to think. Like, how can there be fire and it not be light and dark? But it's not painting a, a literal picture. It's giving us anguish. And he cries out for mercy. Here's what I want you to understand. is that God has shown us mercy. He's shown us mercy in the sending of his son Jesus. But here's the reality about that. You have to accept him. You have to believe in this life. It, it doesn't, it's not going to get to death. And at death, you get the choice. The Bible describes that, no, you would believe now before you die. That now you would confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord. And you would believe in your heart that God raised his son from the dead. Verse 27, and he said, then I beg you, Father, to send him to my father's house. For I have five brothers so that he may warn them, lest they also come into this place of torment. But Abraham said, They have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. Here's my next big idea. Is that when we reject Jesus, we are without excuse. When we reject the mercy of God, when we, when we like the rich young ruler, come to Jesus and say, Jesus, how can we be saved? And he tells us, and we reject it. We are without excuse. He's saying, you, you, you go and you warn them they're going to reject them anyway. You had Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. Let them hear the, the Torah, right? That's, they, they had a copy of the, what we would call the, those Old Testament books. They, had, they knew the Torah. They knew the, the, the prophets. They knew. They'd read Isaiah. They had opened up the scrolls. They knew. Let them go and tell them. If they're not going to believe them, how are they going to believe anything else? How much more so is that true for us? Paul said post-resurrection of Jesus. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made so that they are without excuse. In God's natural revelation, he reveals to us through who he is. In, his, in the Old Testament, the Moses and the prophets do. How much more so are we without excuse because we know who Jesus is. We know the goodness of Jesus. We know that he died on the cross for our sins. So don't reject him, but believe in him. 
Verse 30, and he said, No, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. He said to them, If if they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. John chapter 11. I believe that when when I kind of like try to put this in, in chronological order, I believe that Luke's account happens before John chapter 11. And I think it's by no accident that Jesus uses the name Lazarus both places. They're two different people. One is is a parable. One is a real person. Lazarus, Mary and Martha's brother. The name Lazarus, help came from God. That's what it means. God, God helped. That Jesus was going to go and in a moment, he was going to raised Lazarus from the dead. He got the news that Lazarus was sick. He didn't go heal him. He lets Lazarus die. He hears that Lazarus is dead. He then goes, I'm going to take my time. I'm going to wait a day or two. I'm going to make sure he's real dead. That body's going to be stiff. It's going to be starting to stink. And then I'm going to go do a miracle. And I'm going to raise him from the dead. And, And he goes and he raises the real Lazarus from the dead. And do you know what the Pharisees did, many of them? They rejected them. The very thing that was true, they didn't hear it from uh, Moses and the prophets, they're not going to hear it when I raise him from the dead. But that was only foretelling a much bigger story. That one day, Jesus would be hung on a cross. He'd be beaten Nailed to a cross, his hands nailed, his feet nailed, a crown of thorns on his head. And he would die a brutal death. And he would be really dead. His brain would not be working. His heart would not be beating. There would be no blood running through his veins. His lungs would not have have air in them. He would be placed in that tomb. And on the third day... God would raise him from the dead. He would speak, and his brain would start working, and his heart would start beating, and his lungs would fill up with air, and blood would run through his veins, and he would defeat Satan, sin, and death. So here's my last big idea. Here, Moses and the prophets... And believe in the one who can raise the dead. Don't let our worldly treasure. Don't let the things of the world, the riches of the world, so distract us, so be the stumbling block that we don't hear Moses and the prophets, that we don't hear the story of Jesus and believe in Jesus and be saved. Come to Jesus. Come to the cross and let it transform who you are. I'll go back to that, that, that big truth that we started with in the beginning. That what we believe about the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus, let it shape the way that you live this life. Let it shape the way you treat money. Let it shape the way that you treat the poor. Let it steward both of those well. Let it transform you. You know, 
in our heads, and you're probably thinking like, oh, man, i got to treat the poor better. When I drive by, I need to, I need to, hand, I need to hand him money. I need, I need to give the guy flying a sign money. You know what you're saying? I'm going to give the guy my table scraps. That's not what the call is to here. That's not what the call of how we handle the poor. It's a call to love them. It's a call to build relationships with them. It's a call to invest our lives in them. It's a, it's a call to compassion, to, to, to bridging gaps, to investing life, to get them the gospel, to give them the good news, the life-changing news. It, it's, it's not, oh, maybe if I just have a lot of wealth, I can fix it. No, you are enough. Your relationship with the God is enough. The gospel is enough. It should change how we live our lives. Believe in the Lord Jesus. Believe in his death, burial, and resurrection. Believe in the one who is raised from the dead. Father, we love you and we thank you for your word. I pray we'd live it out. That we wouldn't be satisfied in knowing your word. Knowing how to rightly handle your word. Memorizing your word. But we would be people who live out your word. Who take your word serious. Who take the commands of scripture serious. That we would truly love one another. That we would truly love our neighbor as ourself. That we would love you, the Lord, with all of our heart, with all of our soul, all of our mind. And that we wouldn't love the treasures of this world more than we love people. Lord, let us invest in the lives of other people. Let us serve other people. Lord, let us realize the lies of Satan and how the the riches of the world will not satisfy, but the riches of the goodness of the gospel. The riches of your love and the depth of your mercy and your grace are the things that satisfy us. Lord, let us live in that. Father, move and work in us. Let us be a rich people. Rich and full of love and grace and mercy. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's sing a song of response.